The only school that teaches you about money is the school of hard knocks. Until now. You need to learn this business, and this is the time to do it. Become an insider. So you have to know the rules before you get in the game. Welcome to the Money MBA Podcast. Oh, have I got your attention now? Where you'll learn how to be a master of money. There's so many ways to make money today. Let me show you in two seconds flat why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now here's your host, Jonathan Katsmita. So I am recording today's introduction from an off-site location, which is actually quite fitting considering my guest today is none other than Tony Nash, also known as Tony on Asia in Twitter. Tony is also um, quite known for spending a lot of times, a lot of time off-site, or should I say overseas, as he's quite knowledgeable on everything related to Asia, especially China. And so you'll be able to find quite a bit of information or interviews with Tony talking about what's going on in China and where he sees uh, that situation progressing over the near future. But what we talked about is Tony's project at the moment, which is Complete Intelligence. His company that he started provides an AI artificial intelligence service to help make predictions not only about the direction of certain market classes and assets, but also to help companies um, hedge for procurement and other types of future expenses. So a very interesting concept, uh, I think something that potentially can revolutionize not only how we trade and invest, but how many big companies do business. So I think you're going to find this very interesting. I certainly did. I really enjoyed speaking with Tony. He's definitely somebody I look having uh, on again in the near future. So without further ado, please welcome Tony Nash to the Money MBA podcast. Tony Nash, welcome to the Money MBA podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. Thanks, Sean. So we were um, making the, the podcast mistake of, of getting deep in the conversation before hitting the record button. Um, so we'll, we'll try to take a step back and, and kind of in, introduce you so people are at least on level with who you are and then might as well pick up the baton from where we were before. Um, you're doing a lot of interesting stuff in the AI space. Um, but kind of do a little bit of a, a further step back. I know um, you worked in various types of industries. You kind of did, um, you know, a, a stint in China that was kind of a, almost a volunteer effort that you learned quite a bit from. So why don't you fill us in a bit, and then we'll we'll jump back into some of the interesting things we were talking about off off air. Sure. Um, yeah, my, my experience goes from uh, working in a logistics company early in my career, which really got me to understand world trade and the dependencies within within companies and between companies. I then moved into technology research and, and then moved into turnarounds of technology firms. And then I moved into research for, um, for large information companies like The Economist and IHS Market. And that's really what led me to where I am now. Um, in between those things, I did, I did work, for example, in Sri Lanka during the Civil War. I did work in China with the Chinese government, as you said, on a volunteer basis and other things. So it's really been this progression, kind of a, really a ground up progression from kind of the nuts and bolts of, uh, you know, global trade to the higher level of AI and how do things really fit together. But I think the commonality is 
it's all a puzzle. You know, you're all trying to figure out how it flows together, whether it's information or boxes of, you know, clothes or whatever going from Asia to the U.S. or 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 wherever, right? And so, you know, we see the world as a number puzzle, as as uh, kind of trite as that sounds. In an algorithmic world, uh, we see the world as a as a number puzzle. And so. With that being said, explain what Complete Intelligence is and what you guys are doing as a firm there. Sure. So Complete Intelligence started really when I was working for these large uh, information firms. And I found that, you know, the information firms had come to a point where the narrative was more important than the data. And I saw companies making decisions based upon narrative when the data told them something completely different. And so I wanted to build a company based on data, where people could draw their own narrative conclusions, but that the data really decides where things go. And so we've built a very large platform with billions and billions of data items, billions of interconnections and and, um, uh, calculations that we're doing every month to understand what moves the world from economics to trade, to currencies, to commodity prices, to equity market indices. And we're, you know, we wind up and let the machine go every month. Um, This is fully automated. There is not, uh, we do not have analysts manipulating data behind the scenes. The data upload is automated. The validation and error checking is is automated. And the whole process is automated. There are machine learning elements at different aspects of it. There are kind of neural networks and deep learning aspects of it in different in different parts. And so what we're doing is we're taking these decisions and calculations that you, you know, used to have an analyst sitting on your team doing this stuff with an Excel spreadsheet. Right. And the world right now is too fast and too big to be able to rely on that stuff. And that's really what we're trying to solve from where commodity price is going, what's happening with currencies, but also to things like corporate procurement. How much is every component of your mobile phone going to cost every month for the next year or two years? What revenues by product and geography can you rely on? How fast are they going to grow? Where are they going to pull back? It's those sorts of things. And these are things that in any large company, there are hundreds or thousands of Excel spreadsheets flowing around within the company to make those decisions. And at the end of the day, the decision is a negotiated settlement rather than an empirical conclusion. And so, and so this is what we're helping people do is to have kind of a single truth, one view of the world, both on the revenue and the cost side or on the market side or in the currency side, however it works. But it's a lot of data coming out. We focus on our error rates. We are really getting close to starting to publish our error rates every month. But we found that, that the average error rate within, say, a corporate purchasing team or uh, even a, an analyst in a portfolio is 20 to 30 percent, um, and and in many cases larger than that. But on average, wow. it's, it's between 20 and 30 percent. Our average error rate is between say two and five percent. Okay, so 84.3 percent of the things that we forecast have less than five percent error rate, and that's mean absolute percent error. So we're not kind of balancing off the pluses and minuses. We're we're factoring all of those in. And so we're using very sophisticated techniques to identify how volatile an asset is or an element, 
where it's going to go, what the trajectory is going to look like when there are shocks, how long is that going to last, you know, those sorts of things. So there's, there are a lot of layers of, of considerations that we're wrapping into this. So when you say this error rate, um, I mean, you, you guys cover so many different aspects, whether it be applying this, this technology and these neural networks to the financial markets, or like you said, to business procurement and, mm-hmm. you know, what things are going to cost and, and potentially what kind of revenue that's going to look like a year out. So when, when you're mentioning these, these error rates and these percentages, what exactly, outside of what you do, how would that apply inside you know, a financial firm or business? What, sure. what is that error representing, what people are projecting? Okay. So if we look at the price of WTI uh, crude right. oil, okay, right. our error rate for the past year has been 5.03%. That's Every monthly forecast over every monthly interval over the past year. So that's 144 calculations. We've been 5.03% off on average using mean absolute percent error. Now, if you look at industry forecasters, they're typically worse than 20%. And they've got, you know, with all due respect to the people doing this, they've got some somebody who's been in, let's say, the crude oil industry for 30 years saying, actually, we think WTI is going to 70 bucks, but they don't really have, maybe they have five drivers in their pretty lean Excel model that they're using, right? Right. Um, What we're doing is we're looking at uh, almost a million and a half potential factors that could drive that price. And we're using 28 different neural networks with nine different dimensions within each neural network to understand and evaluate what's moved. So it's a reinforcement learning model. By the time we get to that point, we're using reinforcement learning. And we're rewarding the methodologies that give us the best results. We're punishing the methodologies that uh, don't give us the best results. And those results are iterating every month. So we're rebalancing, recalculating everything every month. Markets move, funds move, you know, volumes move. And so that's why we do this on such a frequent basis. And that's why we reset our calculations on such a a frequent basis. So we're not dealing with the model that we built, you know, two years ago. We're actually rebuilding it and iterating it every month. So it's kind of, I was going to ask you, how long have you been, you know, you, you gave this percentile, this performance for crude, for WTI. How long have you actually been? making those predictions. This is a somewhat new thing. Has it been the last 12 months, 24 months? And the reason I ask that is because you're, you're making this case for the strength purely of empirical data. And it's very interesting for you to have that type of performance in mm-hmm. a market that's almost primarily driven by the narrative. Yes. And I, I won't necessarily say that the narrative is wrong all the time. Um, you know, just look back to going back to oil, look back to September when we had the um, the attacks in Saudi Arabia. Crude right. spiked by 18%. Okay. The right. The attacks. So <laughs> crude spiked by, I think it was 18% or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that day, we have a weekly newsletter. So on that day, we were writing our newsletter saying, look, calm down. It's going to be fine. This is what is telling us there's plenty of supply in the channel. Demand's not growing that much. And so we're going to see crude land out at this price for the month. And that's exactly what it did. Okay. Um, And so 
you know, we, we take into account a number of those factors. The same thing ha- happened in equity markets when, when equities fell out in August. We did the same thing on the day in August. I can't remember the exact day when equities fell pretty dramatically. We came out with a note saying, look, this is going to be fine. It's not really mean reversion, but this is a, you know, this is a shock. Uh, it's a very short-lived shock. And here's what we say is going to happen over the next few months. Now, how long have I been doing this? I've been doing this in one form or another for 20 plus years mm-hmm. uh, and off and on. We've been doing this at Complete Intelligence. We started as a consulting firm uh, almost five years ago. And we did that for about two and a half years. And so we've been iterating this model from a pretty basic approach to a very sophisticated approach. Um, as we productize, we launched our first product a year and a half ago. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, we, we can't say that we've had the rates that we've had for that whole time, partly right. because um, as we've learned different AI and ML techniques, we've applied and we've figured some things out. We've also made the approach much more sophisticated, multi-layer, multi-phase, you know, all this other stuff. And that's allowed us to really understand how do things flow through the world economy? How do things flow through markets? Um, what's the impact of different types of shocks? You know, these sorts of things. And so there are so many different aspects to just looking at a single asset. And so we effectively track the DNA of that asset over time and how um, uh, the dependencies within markets change over time because they're changing they're iterating every second of every day and there are noticeable changes every month and we're tracking that and the machine learns. So if we look, for example, about 15 months ago, we started forecasting power prices. The first month that we did it, our error rate was huge. It was like 85%. And we, we let it go. Okay. So by the third month, it was down to about 8%. And after that, it just continued to improve. So the first month, it's, it's like training a little kid to walk. I mean, that's the analogy people use all the time. There are things around learning to walk that you don't, you don't understand that people take into account. It's not just putting a foot on the ground and one in front of the other. You know, is something coming at you from the side? Are your parents present? You know, all these things. When was the last time you ate? You know, all these things are factors in it. And so we're trying to account directly and indirectly for all the factors around all the prices and costs uh, within markets and within our clients. So when I asked the question, how long it, what well, wasn't implying that, you know, is, is your tenure long enough to have credibility? It just seems so it, it's the opposite of, of what emotionally we lean towards or feel, especially in a market like the crude oil market and WTI that is, is big data is AI really capable of hitting the mark on this. And it's interesting as you talk about, you know, the, the learning process in the beginning, you have these huge error rates. Um, and a little bit earlier, you mentioned, you know, part of your process is, is punishing the bad data. Now, mm-hmm. is that kind of like, you know, in, in an organization, sometimes it's considered, if not most of the time, it's considered um, bad cultural leadership if you're punishing, like China, punishing bad information, because then it never makes it to the top. And then all of a sudden, there's this surprise event. Um, that's probably not what you mean when you're saying punishing bad data, but can you develop that a little bit more as to how yeah, so, the process goes? Yeah. 
when we say we're punishing, sorry, when we say we're punishing, what we're really talking about is deprioritizing, right? When we say we're rewarding, we're talking about prioritizing. So it's not that we're punishing bad data, we're, it's the methodology. So if you are building, building a car or making a cake or whatever, and you try to make your cake on a barbecue or whatever, it's probably not going to work that well. But if you make it in an oven, it's going to work really well. And so, you know, you just decide over time that a barbecue is just not the way to do it. Although the cake mix is just fine, barbecue is not the way to do it. It's probably really good to make in an oven. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about rewarding the right methodology and right. punishing the, the wrong methodology or approach. And so what's happened over the last, I would say, five years around machine learning and, and all these different things is the ability to develop or even uh, select uh, an approach, run it within your model and decide whether it works or not, and then chuck it out. That's a pretty quick process to do. So we do that at different phases of our uh, of our process, and um, and it allows us the flexibility because traders or machines or whatever they're always taking different approaches to doing things. Right? If you're trading the same way today that you were in 1995, you probably have a problem. So you know this stuff changes really really quickly because learning is about power, uh, pattern recognition. Right. And so and trading is a lot about pattern recognition. Right. Um, so you, you, we really need to identify how those things are changing over time. And we adjust. So it's not as if there's one formula to get things right. There are a lot of formulas to get things right. And those formulas change pretty frequently. So explain to me what a, a neural network is and how that functions in this process. Um, so it's. So there, you know, there, there's a lot of different language around artificial intelligence. And so there's artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, you know, this sort of thing. So rather than neural network, let's, let's say reinforcement learning. And those two things are very different. But okay. artificial intelligence really is anything that has math in it. Okay. I know that sounds really weird. But there are so many people out there saying they're doing AI when really all they're doing is math. And so today when I hear people say AI, my brain just translates that as math. Okay. And so I would recommend that your, your listeners do the same. Don't be impressed by the words artificial intelligence. Don't be impressed by AI. Whenever you hear that, assume somebody's using Excel. Okay? Um, assume they're doing a basic mathematical function. It's not, you know. AI can be anything really that, that numbers are involved with. So machine learning, according to the way we view machine learning, is a mathematical approach where there is not human intervention. So, you know, if we have people running, uh, you know, running models, and then at the end, they're changing it before it's published, which is how every research firm works, okay? That's not machine learning, okay? You have to allow the machines to make mistakes. And so that's what we've done for years. We've let the machines make mistakes. And so I talked about power prices. We, if we wanted to game those prices to some sort of consensus number, I would never tell you we had like an 85% error rate in the first month. We would have right. just said, oh, yeah, we were right in line with consensus. That was, you know, we were just like everyone else. But we let the machines make mistakes. 
when we talk about things like deep learning, what we're talking about is multi-phase, multi-layer approaches um, to solving problems with math. And that's a lot of computing power. Once you get to deep learning with the billions of data items and calculations that we're using, structured, multi-phase, this sort of thing, that's a, that's a lot. Uh, that's a lot of computing power. And then when we get to reinforcement learning, what we're doing there really is, is having competing methodologies, okay? And each of those methodologies in a very general sense, and I don't know this isn't perfectly textbook correct, but each of those competing methodologies operates almost like a neural network, okay? And so um, those methodologies compete and in the same way a person learns, they rely on the approaches that work and they neglect the approaches that don't work. And so we're not going to make a cake on a barbecue. And that's how we do reinforcement learning is we're cycling through methodologies for every single element and asset that we forecast. So off the shelf on our subscription is 800 different assets that we forecast. So for every single one of those that we forecast, we're testing you know, um, today it's 28 different reinforcement learning approaches, and that'll grow over time. Uh, and then we track those approaches that have worked for every month, and they build on each other, and they learn. And it's proportional, or in some cases, it's neutral weighted. We, we track all of that stuff as well. Uh, and so, um, so reinforcement learning is really a very intense process, very data-heavy process for every single thing that we do. So imagine if you have a mobile phone and it has 3,000 different components in it. You're doing the same thing for every component in that mobile phone and tracking those reinforcement learning kind of conclusions for every time you run, you run the approach. So go ahead. Yeah, so speaking of the components, as you put it, with a cell phone, I mean, you have, once you start getting into these types of conversations where there's we'll call it predictions being made. I, I, I feel like it just naturally applies to the financial markets, mm -hmm. but there's really two aspects to this. There is certainly how you can use this information, this technology um, as far as managing money and, and, and the outcomes of certain investments, but you're also creating a ton of value in the procurement space and, and how someone who is building a cell phone can make certain predictions about what a particular item or asset, as you put it, is going to end up costing them. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. And so, you know, we can go into a client and take on their entire supply chain and help them understand how much that's going to cost. So if you're coming from an analyst perspective and you're analyzing that country, company, you want somebody to be doing what we're doing so that you understand that you're portfolio clients are doing what they can to plan for, you know, price evolution or supply chain shocks or whatever, you want to make sure that they're not just buying steel from the guy who took them to the, the Yankees game or whatever, right. right? And a lot of procurement has done that way. And so, you know, I think procurement is one of those areas where, that will become very sophisticated very quickly because of things that we're doing and other people are doing. Um, it's the equivalent of kind of say what open outcry was 30 years ago. It's procurement is a very rudimentary function within a, within a company. It's not, it's not as if it's not automated at all, but there's a lot of work that can be done to really make things more 
sophisticated and more relevant. So as you're saying, you can use it to model out the price of your assets in your portfolio. You can also apply it to those companies within the portfolio to understand what their costs will be, what their revenues will be, what countries will suffer, uh, what products will suffer by country, that sort of thing. And that's exactly the type of work that we're doing. Well, it works on both ends. I mean, on one angle, you can help that business be more efficient and be more profitable. And obviously that deeper, more granular information about that company and how they're procuring their assets applies to the portfolio manager as well. So it's kind of a win for win. Yep. So this, I mean, another cliche term, I mean, it's you're being facetious about AI and, and spreadsheets and how it's just math. And I, I appreciate that. But another cliche term is big data. Right. How does this fall into that big data world? I mean, on one angle, you have the Googles and the Facebook where that big data is under scrutiny because of perhaps the privacy, where this is more a collection of, of public market data, but it's still obviously a significant amount of information where can you uh, kind of maybe mention or explain how the two are, are different? What, what type of big data you're dealing with versus the, yeah. the cliche term? Yeah, I, I don't think... You know, the current environment of AI that we're, that we're seeing, I don't think would be relevant if we didn't have uh, the big data environment that's been developed over the last 15 years. So big data phase one was just store all your stuff, you know, buy big, big storage devices and store all your stuff, either locally or on the cloud. Okay. Um, uh, but what's happened over the last, I would say, five to eight years is, okay, we've got all this stuff. What do we do with it? And how do we make better decisions with it? It's not just saving it for a historical record. It's applying it to better decisions. And that's where, we're, where, where we get involved. And so I think a lot of the machine learning tools and, and the reason they've developed is, is because people can actually tap all this data that's there. Uh, and so, you know, the type of data that we're using, of course, we're using publicly available, publicly available data. But we're also using, say, data directly from uh, an ERP system. Uh, and so we work with some of the ERP providers uh, to tap into clients' ERP systems. Of course, clients would give permission before we do this. Right. But we take data directly from a client's ERP platform so that we can run our processes to help that client make better decisions about revenue planning, about procurement planning, or you know whatever it is. And so none of these things really work on their own. If you're just storing a bunch of stuff and you never look at it, then why store it, right? Aside from legal compliance, there really isn't a reason to store it. Um, if you're using it to make better decisions, then then that makes a lot of sense. And so, so that's where kind of the big data AI kind of continuity really comes together is when, pe when companies are, are trying to understand how to make better decisions using all the stuff that they've stored in the past. And have you, and I'm, I'm sure you have, but have you thought about, let's say price wasn't a factor? How does it, the evolution of this technology, um, before we get into the negative impacts of it perhaps, but how do, how do you see this potentially benefiting the average person? Like how could they use it in their world? Is that, is that kind of an area that you guys started scratching at a bit? Obviously institutionals, the first stage of, of a lot of this early technology, but where, where do you see it trickling down to small business and, and the average person? We have some very small funds who are subscribers. And so, you know, there are small funds who can use and apply what we're doing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that our, 
let's say our, our off the shelf futures platform, it's called CI futures, which does markets, the commodities, currencies, equity indices. I wouldn't say that's a recommendation, it's analysis, but you know, small investors, we know small investors are using it to understand where things might go. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a buy sell recommendation, of course, it's a, it's a computer model. Um, but you know, that's, you know, that's one application for it. How can, you know, how do individuals uh, benefit from it? Actually, you know, if you look, for example, at say pork prices in China, right. um, but pork prices here in the U S are actually still pretty tame. So as we look at how those markets are, are developing, if you've got pork as an input in your goods, you know, we're looking at an inflection uh, in the first half of next year for pork prices in the U.S. So um, if you're buying bacon at your grocery store, right. you, know, you want your pork, your bacon maker to understand that they're making the best decisions using our stuff. And so we're a very anti-inflation society today. We, you know, the reason we plan is so that, you know, there's, there's limited inflation in our transactions. And so that's how it benefits people on the street. We've, we've really gone through the cycles of globalization and the kind of race to the bottom in terms of labor prices that you can get from globalization and international transportation. Um, we've really advanced pretty far with kind of price um, competition through online marketplaces and online service providers like Amazon, that sort of thing. And so, you know, we've gone through a couple phases of that. And it's our belief that it's only through things like uh, machine learning driven uh, modules like we develop that people can understand all the factors that go in so that they can understand how to control inflation, the producer inflation uh, involved in, in markets. And so eventually that, that goes to the consumer. So let, let me make maybe a, a bold prediction and maybe not at all. Let's say this, this learning process gets so good that what you end up doing is smoothing out the unpredictability of markets. At what point does that start to become, you know, things be, just become so, so smooth and quiet because all of this data is, is being digested and churned and, and forecasts are being made to the point where everyone's kind of in the same state of mind, same status quo. Um, when you answer that question, I think it'd be also a good transition into what we are kind of talking offline about what AI's impact could potentially be across, you know, everyone's lives, everyone's jobs, everyone's kind of value in the marketplace when these things start to, like I just, you know, suggested, take over, smooth things out and, and have these big types of impacts. Sure. So I think, um, I don't necessarily think it means that you'll have flat prices, but I think what it means is you'll have a much better view in price discovery, almost pre-price discovery. Right. Of course, you can never get to zero error. Um, I, I don't, you know, without price controls, you can't get to zero error in forecasting. And so, you know, we reveal our error rates, we reveal the, you know, all the statistics around our forecasts. And so, you know, it's, it's very likely that things will move in line with, with what we're saying. Um, but if you have both sides that transaction with a similar understanding of where prices are likely to go, then the only, well, not the only, but one of the most powerful, say, disruptive influences in that relationship would be a supply shock. 
um, you know, fires in the wheat fields in Russia or a cyclone off of Australia stopping coking coal as it did in 2017. And that rises like 300% in one month and, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, so those things happen. And, and when you do that, you know, what you're looking at is, okay, what's the magnitude of this shock? What's the duration of this shock? What's the half-life of this shock? You know, so that, so that everyone can then understand what the likely impact is on price based upon what that event is. But given a, a kind of a balanced market, which we wish there were balanced markets, there are never really perfectly balanced markets, but if there's a balanced market, then yeah, the price discovery and almost pre-price discovery, given more information, more sophisticated algorithms and so on and so forth, should be relatively predictable. And, you know, outside of, say, uh, far end emerging, you know, markets where, uh, you know, there just aren't, say, developed logistics networks or cold storage or port reliable ports or that sort of thing. Okay. But in most, say, middle income to developed markets, mm-hmm. which is most of the world, you know, prices should be relatively um, understandable on both sides. So I, feel that, like in the, I feel like in the financial markets, a lot of, you know, a lot of, there's always a lot of talk around, you know, having an edge. Um, really what that means to me is arbitrage, right? And so if you start getting into a space where the error rate is very low, as you're mentioning, you really start to, what's the point of a lot of people because the arbitrage is gone, right? The, the margin there for knowing something that someone else does, doesn't, um, and being able to, to capitalize on that becomes much more minute. Yeah, but a lot of that comes as more information is available anyway, right? So I keep hearing that a lot of the arbitrage opportunities are gone. Not, they weren't what they were 30, 40 years ago. Information wasn't as closely held as it was. And so that information kind of market is starting to work, which right. is a good thing. And the gatekeepers of that information aren't, don't have the power they used to have. Um, and so, you know, people will find other things to bet on. I'm not worried about that. But in terms of widely traded goods, um, you know, there's more and more information. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for things like food security. It's a good thing for things like, you know, understanding where inflation is going, planning wages, you know, all of this stuff. And so it's good all around, I think, for stable, you know, stable societies. Um, but I think, you know, we talked to a number of traders who believe that, you know, they have that edge and they can do better and this sort of thing. And that's fine. Um, but I think many of the tools that we're developing erode some of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an early example of what we had. Okay. So in May of 2015, we were, we were asked by a client to forecast crude and metals and other prices for a bill of material that they had. At the time, uh, WTI was trading at 68 bucks. The consensus view from all the big crude oil forecasters and Wall Street banks was that it would be around 80 bucks by the end of the year or more. Um, We ran, again, this was an early simulation of what we do. Um, We ran it and we found, for example, that WTI would be $46 by December of 2015. So consensus view is 80. It was currently trading at 68, seven months ahead of time. We said 46. Okay. Where did crude oil trade in December? On average, it was 42 bucks. Okay. So, you know, the data was there. It was there. If we did it, the data was there. And this was an early version of what we were doing. Okay. 
Um, so, but the market, well, the experts or whatever, the people who plan positions had convinced themselves it would be at 80 bucks. And so, you know, it, it, that wasn't even as sophisticated as we are now. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think th- there, the, um, the edge that many people think they have, I think is kind of an illusion over a medium term period. In a very immediate period, maybe, you know, less than a minute, less than 30 minutes, whatever, those sorts of things through different tools or through relationships or something like that may still be there. But I think if you're looking to a short to medium term period, it's really hard to claim, I think, that, that people have a real edge. And, you know, what kind of, uh, at this point, early mover advantage do you, do you feel like you have? Because this, I mean, things are moving so quick. Um, you've been in, the, in this industry in some form or another for two decades or more. But with what you're doing with complete intelligence, how fast are you guys moving to the point where, you know, new participants, it, it starts to become more and more difficult for them to keep up? You know, I, what we've seen so far is that um, new participants don't, they, they are not even including the magnitude of information to come to kind of calibrate the approaches that we've come to. There are a lot of smart people out there. I don't claim to be the smartest. I don't claim our guys are the smartest, although I think they're brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know, there are smarter people than us out there. But it's taken us a long time to understand how to put all the pieces together and, um, and how to understand them. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not as if you're just doing some regression analysis and saying this is where the price is going to go. It's much more sophisticated than that. And so, um, so new entrants will come in. I'm not really worried about it. Competition is fine. They help to create a market space and recognition and all that stuff. So all that's fine. But most of what we see are people who claim to be doing AI who are, quite frankly, really using Excel workbooks. Mm -hmm. Um, People who claim to be using AI who have a back office somewhere and they're changing the output because they don't want to be far from consensus. Um, People who claim to be using AI who are really relying on, say, a textual narrative than the data. Um, and then people who are really doing more benchmarking than forecasting. And benchmarking is you know, 20 years old, and it really tells you what happened three months ago. It doesn't really tell you what's happening right now. And so, so and that's fine. And, and I'm not saying that in a way like no one will ever catch up with us. I know people will catch up with us. Um, but I, I think where we are right now, I think it will take a little bit of time for someone to have an offering like we have um, and, um, and really match up to the capability in terms of what is a mean absolute percent error that is usable. Um, and that's a client can, is confident to say, okay, 5.03% for WTI. I'm really comfortable with that because that's four to six times, four to six times, 400 to 600% better than my internal team or than the, than the industry experts do. Clients are starting to recognize that and they're starting to say, okay, we want to offload some of these decisions to you or at least some of this analysis to you and run our entire supply chain through this. That's a big decision for them to make too. You know, it's, it's, um, it's just a, a big shift and change. And so it speaks volumes about, you know, the, the performance you guys are having. For me, some of the, the models, that, the classic models that are out there, one comes to mind is Elliott Wave. 
And I always found it interesting early on when I was first learning about it because it was this idea, or at least the narrative was that mood is what's driving markets. You know, it's the human behavior component and all we're really doing is, is catching up to what the mood has already decided. When you guys are looking at what is obviously constant um, progression, the machines are always learning. There's always kind of a shift as to what's working, what isn't. How much do you think is, is those types of human behavior models versus just the supply chain empirical data type of stuff? Are, are you observing that from a distance and kind of finding mm-hmm. you know, it a bit intriguing in one way or the other? So sentiment is, is a funny thing. And we've, we've really tried to figure out sentiment for the past few years. And there's, there are a number of companies out there who claim to do sentiment analysis. And the problem with sentiment is it's asset specific. Okay. So the sentiment for gold is not the same as the sentiment for Japanese yen or Canadian dollar or whatever. Makes and sense. so part of, part of what I've been trying to figure out is what is the half-life of sentiment, right? How do you determine the intensity and duration of sentiment? Because if you can't do that, then you actually don't know. You know, um, I think Bloomberg has a, a plus one, minus one sentiment indicator by asset. That's fine. It's great. It's very rudimentary. But how long does that sentiment last? It, you know, is plus one for gold the same thing as plus one for crude oil or for the yen? It's, it's just not, right? And so, you know, what we've been trying to figure out is how long does that last? And, and what triggers it? And, you know, all of these things. I don't necessarily believe that social media is a, is a forecastable indicator on an asset. Um, there, there have been for the last, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, people trying to use social media to forecast sentiment based on things. It's quite possible, but I don't necessarily believe it. It may tell you what happened 10 minutes ago or five days ago, but I'm not, I'm not yet convinced that you can forecast sentiment based on social media or search results or something like that. And, and there's, I'm, there are academic papers I've seen who claim otherwise, and that's fine. I, you know, but but I'm not convinced enough in that to include that in our platform. Um, now, that does really have an impact on a very short term. So there are spikes, there are intraday or intraweek spikes on things. Um, and we can look at gold over the past, say, over the summer and what happened with gold prices and the sentiment that pushed gold prices up for you know, multiple months which is now coming back to where it probably should be. And so, you know, but I wouldn't necessarily say that the gold sentiment that pushed that up over the summer, you know, that's a different kind of sentiment than we've seen in other gold, you know, other gold moves. So sentiment is not a one size fits all. And it's, you know, the Elliott wave aspect of it is, is really interesting. Um, But, you know, as we have more sentiment data, it's really hard to understand what's relevant, what's not, how it works, how it doesn't, when it applies, you know, all this other stuff. So we really want to include that stuff mostly for near-term, very, very near-term impact on price. Um, But we're just not there yet. But social media is something that you guys are taking as as an input. Yeah, social media search results, you know, there are a number of other things that that we're looking at and trying to assess – um, but we just, we're just not quite settled on that yet. And we can't, 
even find companies who claim to be doing this who have assigned, say, um, uh, say specific type of, like we do, say, the, the DNA for every asset that we forecast. We're not necessarily seeing any guys who do sentiment analysis who are iterating that DNA by asset. Um, so we're just really, we're trying to figure it out because our clients are going to ask us very difficult questions about it. And until we're convinced of it, right. we're not going to try to convince our clients of it. Gotcha. So without looking for a freebie, is there, um, is there some, some forecast you can share on some of the very, I guess, emotional assets like gold, like oil? I mean, are you guys doing anything as far as uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? Um, we're, so we're not doing cryptos right now. We've tested some, some cryptocurrency forecasts. Um, and it's just not something we're, we're confident putting up. We have our own kind of behind the curtain assessment of it. Um, there are, um, yeah, there are just a number of considerations before we wanted to put that up. Um, we talked about it pretty seriously about six months ago and just wanted to kind of understand it better before we started doing that. We, we could actually put it up and then monitor it for a while because we, like I said, we've been, we've been doing it for, for quite some time behind the curtain, but you know, crypto is like gold. I, I don't see crypto as a currency. I see it as an asset. Okay. Um, and it, it gets the same emotional response as gold or Tesla or something like that. Right. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's really, um, it's really a gamble to put it, uh, even an empirical opinion, a, a data driven opinion out on that stuff. Uh, because it gets such an emotive response from people. Well, it falls in line what we're just talking about as far as, you know, trying to measure sentiment in a, mm -hmm. in a way that's, that's valuable that you can kind of put your name behind. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. So you, when we were um, talking offline, you, you pulled up a, a survey that you did. Um, if you feel like sharing that right now, you can. And if it sure. doesn't show up, I'll, I'll input it later on the, on the final um, production. But this was interesting as you had posted a survey on Twitter that um, posed the question, how many people or do what percentage of your job or your role do you feel is going to be in some form or another impacted or, or eliminated? So I'll, I'll read it out loud. Quick survey. How much of your current job scope do you believe AI and or RPA, robotic process automation, can automate? And um, the results are interesting because um, I'll admit I voted 90%. I think big parts of my industry will be automated or won't exist in a very short period of time. But the majority of people voted for less than 40%. And basically half of those voted for less than 10 or, or less. So what are some, what are some shocks that, that you, 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 know, you kind of had looking at that information or, or what naivety is? is there at this point with, with what AI is going to be doing to most people's industries? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think a lot of, we'll say white collar people assume that AI and uh, robotic process automation will impact blue collar jobs. But I think a lot of the blue collar job automation has happened over the past 20 plus years. Um, factory automation, that sort of thing. Um, I think we're in an era where it's really white-collar jobs, um, office jobs that uh, are the most 
um, kind of most relevant for automation. Uh, this tells me, so because this was a Twitter survey, you know, most of the guys who follow me on Twitter are office folks and analysts and, you know, um, research people or, you know, uh, multinational company type of folks. So 10% of those guys think that, or, or those guys think only 10% of their job can be automated. Um, I think probably for me, you know, 60% can be automated in mine. I probably would have chosen 70%. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think people are not aware of how routine their days are, how, and anything that's routine is algorithmic. Uh, anything that's routine can be automated. So, you know, for people who spend half of their day in Excel or something, all that stuff is, you know, is automatable and not like 10 years from now, like, like two years ago. <laughs> so, you know, so, so I think, you know, there is a lot of efficiency that can be made within, within the office, um, within processes, within decision processes, within data gathering, within building models, within, you know, planning and, you know, all this stuff. So, um, you know, I think it's, there's, there's about to be a realization of how routine people's jobs and lives are and how unmysterious much of what people do really is. And I don't mean that to kind of blow off anybody's, you know, uh, means for making a living. That's not it at all. What, what my view is, is that by automating part of your job, it allows you to really take part in more interesting things in your job. Um, if you're, let's say you're with an oil and gas firm, but you're in, in planning and let's say 50% of what you're doing is automated, then you know what? You, you get to do other things that are core to the oil and gas industry, right? You get to do other things that are more interesting. My grandparents picked crops up and down the Central Valley of California. And this was in the 50s. 40s and 50s. And, you know, all those jobs that they had are, well, not all of them, most of them are automated now. They're automated carrot and cantaloupe and lettuce pickers and all that stuff. Right. They just do, those guys just do different stuff in society. And again, I'm not saying that to blow off the, the work that anybody's done, but these types of changes don't happen overnight. They happen iteratively. They happen over a period of time. And so I think, Workers can embrace this stuff, you know, really understand what it's about and use these things in a, as an advantage for themselves and just get really smarter about their core business uh, or other stuff that they want to do. So, but I do think that we're entering a phase where people are starting to realize the impact that automation will have on these traditional office jobs. Um, and there's, I think there's a wave of efficiency that's going to go through multinational companies and even mid-sized companies um, that people, that many people, especially those 72% said less than, you know, less than 40% would be automated. I think 72% of those respondents are about to have a real shock as to how much of their job can be automated. Yeah. And that, as we were speaking before, the, the cognitive dissonance there is, is, uh, fascinating. It's mind blowing. And 
Um, I think a lot of it has to do with a bit of a bit of ego tied in there. Like you had said, most people don't realize how much of what they do is routine and therefore automatable or can fit into an algorithm. And for me, I, I just look at it as the other, not the other side of that, but the aspect of that, which is you're not really creating that much value in what you're doing or a better way of looking at it, which is kind of how you put it, your value is better served doing something else. So yes. no, I, I just wonder how many people out there make, you know, $80,000 or more a year, 250, 300 or more who are living in Excel a big part of their day, right? And it's great that you can program VBA, you know, and, you know, all this other stuff. But, but actually, it's, you know, it's not the best use of the company's resources to do that. And actually, if you're that well trained, you can use your brain for a lot more complicated things than living, living in Excel. Well, if we've got technology and AI and, and services like you're providing that can do this algorithmic stuff, the, the generally automatable stuff. I mean, AI is going to progress. It's obvious it's, it's going to progress at a rate that, you know, we can't even predict at this point. Um, but it, it may take some time before machine learning and AI and, and however you want to split those two, um, the robotics, all this type of thing, before they can actually be creative. And so if, if we can get ourselves out of the Excel spreadsheet, then we can actually use our, our true value and potential, which is that creativity. But I wonder how much, and, and I'm, I guess I'm posing a philosophical question to an empirical guy at this point, but how much of this is, um, you know, people's just enrooted laziness, right? It's, it's, they don't want to be presented with this challenge that they have to creatively find a solution to. And so you get some of these narratives re regarding uni universal based income and, and even with the universal based income, if that would actually work in a way where it allowed people to do creative things and add unique value. But it seems to me like most people are just going to use it as, as social welfare. Yeah. I think one of the biggest opportunities over the next 10 years is for people who can oversee change management around automation in the workforce um, because, you know, the acceptance, uh, the evolution of what people do around that stuff uh, is a huge need. Uh, I don't believe there's going to be massive social dislocation. I just don't believe that. I do think that there's plenty of other things for people to do. Um, I think they'll just become more efficient and they'll be doing more. So, but I think initially taking things, and I, I also believe some of this is going to be generational. So if you're mid-50s or older, you're probably going to continue doing what you're doing. But if you're mid-40s, you need to be ready for some change that you're probably not comfortable with. Mm -hmm. If you're in your 20s, you're, you don't care. You're ready for it, right? And if you're in your 30s, you're probably kind of in the middle. But I'm in my late 40s. And so a lot of my colleagues really wouldn't know, not colleagues in complete intelligence, but my, my friends and other people right. I know in, in business really wouldn't be that comfortable with automation of a lot of what they do. Why? Because they've been doing it for so long, right? They have a lot of intelligence in their head that they can apply even when things are automated, but they're so used to the tasks that they've been doing. And even if they say, oh, I have to do X again, but they need X 
for their their professional identity. Right. And so there, again, the organizational change management around that, um, I think, is is a huge need over the next ten years. Um, not because people are, I don't necessarily believe people are going to be laid off, but I believe people are going to have to redefine their roles and figure out what to do being more efficient. So organ, organizational change management actually becomes identity crisis management. It could, I, I, but it, it normally is, right? I mean, change management is about is about changing your identity, whether it's within your organization or you know, between departments or whatever. Um, and by the way, you mentioned something about not asking a philosophical question. You know, I've run the gamut on philosophy over the last, you know, five years as I've <laughs> built an AI company because you have to, you have to go down that road at some point where you, you know, you ask some of those core questions because you ask how far can these technologies go? What can they do? Um, you know, and, and you get to some of these core questions and then you just kind of become comfortable with it. But I think that those types of bordering on, say, philosophical and empirical questions or data-driven questions or whatever, I think those are meaningful discussions to have. And there, there are a lot of meaningful trade-offs that people are going to either knowingly or unknowingly make as technology diffuses into things that people have had to do manually for a long, long time. And you know, if you look at Excel, not to pick on Excel, <laughs> Excel is a 30-year-old tool. Right? right. And, you know, it's just uh, it's just something that I, I would think we should. Nobody's using. Um, I don't know. What was that software tool people used in the in the 80s that was pre Excel? There was a um, uh, kind of a pre anyway. But nobody uses that. Nobody uses Harvard graphics anymore for PowerPoint. Right. Um, those, those software had a life and they, you know, life was gone. And so, you know. I think we need to move into next generations of how people actually view and manipulate data. Um, and so one of the other things that I think is, is really interesting right now is we're seeing, uh, say, multinational firms who make a widget, whatever it is, mm -hmm. hiring, uh, say, a data science department. When they make widgets, they don't necessarily need a data science department, right? You don't, you don't, program Microsoft Word before you write something in Microsoft Word, right? You just buy it from Microsoft. And so, you know, it's really interesting to see these companies go down this road to try to build, effectively build their own software, which is something they all surrendered in the 90s anyway, right? But because data science is new, they're trying to understand it. And, and I think what we're going to see is a lot of these corporate data science teams, they're going to cycle through and be spun out or something like that because they're not core to the business. They're an enabler. They're not the business itself. So, um, so there are a number of, I guess, um, maybe philosophical and functional decisions that people are making or, or going through right now around how to apply and how to develop artificial intelligence for their business and their decisions. So I want to wrap up with a philosophical question. Before I get to that, I wanted to ask you, you've done various videos and interviews and um, you know, we've met in person and, and at that time you, you talked a lot about China. Um, so that's, that's something you've expressed a viewpoint on. Are there some big themes like that that you, you want to kind of give your thoughts on real quick? The, the China theme, maybe something like um, the gold or, or WTI crude oil markets. Is there some sure. bigger yeah. themes that you'd like to, to talk or touch on? 
Sure, yeah. So with China, um, what, what I discussed when we met was um, that, you know, it's our belief that we're, we're kind of at the end of the Asian century. And, um, and the Asian century is the China century. So China is the Asian century. Um, the China story is the Asia story, at least it has been for the past 20 years. What's happened with China and with Asia uh, more broadly outside of Japan is, you know, they've borrowed against the, ne the, the next, uh, say, 30 years to fund the last 10 years. And there, there are so many problems structurally within Asia when you look at demographics, when you look at debt, when you look at consumption and so on and so forth that it's our view that Asia is largely played out. And when I say it's played out, I mean that expectation that Asia will grow X amount faster mm -hmm. um, is largely played out. India is an exception there, but I don't believe India will be the next China. Um, but Asia generally is, is slowing down dramatically. Um, it's easy to kind of roll out the old chestnut of China's GDP numbers aren't what you think. Of course. I mean, that's a, that's assumed. Um, right. But um, I don't believe it's it's zero. Um, uh, our view was that, or is that, it was about four ish percent this year. It was about five eight last year. So things are slowing pretty dramatically. Um, China has the, the social contract that China put together with its with its people and the surrounding countries around look, just surrender some autonomy and we'll give you a, a good life. That's breaking down actually much faster than people thought as well. So. Um, uh, we don't expect a, a massive crash in China in the near term. We just see that slowing down. And because that's slowing down, we expect social unrest to continue on a regular basis, uh, let's say over the next five years or, or longer. So China isn't what it was. Um, Europe, you know, very similar, I guess, somewhat similar story. It's more of a demographic story than anything else. Um, Europe is largely played out. We look at, you know, and we've had this view for the last few years. Um, look what's happening with the recession in Germany and, and how, you know, it's not just uh, the Greek crisis from five years ago. That was an early symptom of later issues. And again, we see Europe continuing to slow down despite their uh, best efforts to um, uh, debase the currency and do other things. It, it will just continue to slow down. Um, in terms of, say, sectors, um, we do see crude slowing down for the next few months. We see it ticking up a bit kind of mid-late Q1 or so of next year. Um, and uh, with a number of ag products around, say, soy and wheat and those sorts of things, we see those hitting multi-year lows. Um, some of that's on the trade war. Some of that's on slowing consumption. There are a number of different factors there as well. Um, and so, you know, you know, we can we could go on for hours talking through sectors, but um, mm -hmm. the U.S. We think the U.S. will grow above global, above the global average certainly for developed countries. Um, we think the U.S. is in a pretty good position. We don't necessarily see it hitting four or five percent growth, uh, but as we do see wages rise in the U.S., which has happened pretty well over the past couple of years, um, we see credit. Uh, at least uh, consumer credit stay relatively manageable and enthusiasm stay relatively high. Um, we see the U.S. in a pretty good position, although it won't necessarily outperform. Things will be pretty good, at least for the next couple of years. 
if there is a risk of recession, we don't see that until about 2021. So it's interesting because today, I believe the news out of Hong Kong is that they kind of finally completely or apparently completely shelved this, you know, the foreign policy that was going on between mainland China and Hong Kong and um, the main, some of the main components of what everyone was protesting. But we'll, we'll see how that plays out. We know, we know China likes to, to kind of play, play its games. Um, and when you say the Asian century, can you um, clarify what you're referring to when you mention that? Well, the concept of the Asian century really came around in the late 90s when, you know, there were a lot of kind of thought leaders out there saying, you know, we're starting the Asian century as China, with China's rise. It's this, you know, century of, you know, uh, gravity to Asia and all these other things. And it's great. I think there's a lot of opportunity in Asia. I think the last 20 years has been the easy opportunity. Um, I think the next 80 years is going to be really hard. Interesting. Uh, and when you get to the hard opportunity, uh, I think that's when, if you can't convert that hard opportunity, I think um, you have some social issues and you have political issues. And so uh, some of the political leaders need to make really hard decisions around, you know, what do they do to develop their economy? What do they do for their role in the region, in the world? Um, what, say, rights and obligations, what rights do they give their people, what obligations do they have to their people, and so on and so forth. That's not just a China statement. Again, that's across the region. Uh, and so I, I don't think a lot of Asian governments are willing to have that conversation. Uh, corruption is still a massive issue in Asia that people don't like to raise, but until there is transparency, until corruption is... Um, is taken very seriously. I think the, you know, the three and a half billion people in Asia are going to suffer. They're just going to suffer. And that's a very terrible thing to accept. But until they take ownership of their own societies and force their leadership to be more transparent and less corrupt, then, you know, there, there's really not a lot that the rest of the world can do. That's a perfect segue into the philosophical um, to wrap this up. And that actually presents a, a second philosophical question, which is the corruption that you reference and, and the problem it causes, not just in Asia, but other kind of growing and emerging markets, Latin American markets. Does the, the blockchain cryptocurrency um, concept start to fix that? You know, it, it, does, it, does it shed, um, does it make things more transparent where, you know, the money game can't be manipulated by a few. Yeah, I, I just want to be clear. I, I, I just moved back to the U.S. two years ago, mm -hmm. and um, it's, I was out, outside of the U.S. for 15 years, um, and the level of corruption in the U.S. is surprising to me. So <laughs> I, I don't just see it as a developing country thing. The level of corruption in Europe has surprised me for a long time. And so... Um, you know, can the blockchain help to um, offset corruption? I think it can. I think the question is, will it? The problem is um, exceptions can always be programmed. Uh, algorithms can be programmed to turn the other way in the same way people turn the other way. Um, technology can be manipulated and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, the problem with, with technology is this. 
everyone assumed that technology is this freeing thing. So if you remember in the mid nineties, the internet was going to free us all. And what do we have now? We have these big internet companies capturing all of our information, right? right. So this tool that was supposed to free us has become something that knows more about us than we do. And so I think the danger of crypto, not crypto, a blockchain, the danger of blockchain is the degree to which it collects and organizes data. Mm. It could be, it could be potentially very dangerous. And so um, is it this libertarian tool? It can be, but will it be? I'm not optimistic about it. I'm really not. And so, you know, this is why a lot of the cryptocurrency guys and blockchain evangelists and stuff, I'll listen to them, but I'm not really that much of a fan of them because whenever new technologies that are supposed to kind of free us come about, they almost always end up doing the opposite. You know, it's a very interesting perspective and I, I completely see where you're coming from. And I look forward to diving down that rabbit hole on my own. The last a philosophical question and, and to wrap this up, being in the AI space and, and certainly the, the survey that you posted on Twitter regarding AI and robotics, how much of the, how much potential is for the sci-fi aspect of this to play out where AI and machine learning and the robotics start to become, or at some point become a, nem a nemesis for the uh, human race? kind of that Armageddon, us against the robots, Terminator type of scenario? Um, I don't know. I, uh, I, is it possible? Maybe. But I think it becomes more of, a, more of a capital issue, meaning as we've seen wage gaps emerge, what, you know, whether it's real or not, the concept of a wage gap that people have talked about since, what, 2008 or 9 or 10 or something, um, you know, I think technology oftentimes entrenches this, the strata, the wealth strata. Uh, you said you wanted to get philosophical, so here Please we go. Right? <laughs> the, the whole so I think wealth effect and wage gap and, and wealth gap is, is just as relevant to the AI conversation and the question I posed. Yeah, so I, I, think, I, I think there's a real danger that, um, that technology like uh, artificial intelligence, entrenches uh, wealth gaps. Uh, and the people who don't know and don't accept and, and all this stuff um, are, are kind of the have-nots. The people who develop and control the technology are the haves. And I certainly hope that isn't the case. I hope it doesn't develop that way. Um, again, all we're trying to do is help people make better decisions, right? So their shareholders can do well. Right. Um, but you know, when I look at some of the AI technology that's being developed, some of it's kind of scary. And a lot of the scary AI technology uh, for me is, uh, is the, audio, uh, the um, photo and video AI technology. Mm. A lot of the marketing technology that really is monitoring kind of, you know, the stuff the secret police did in East Germany is, is just automated now, right? And so, you know, these things really scare me. It's not the cost modeling and stuff that we do but it's the monitoring uh, and the cataloging and the memory of stuff. When AI remembers stuff that you don't, that's right. scary. When right. AI remembers, you know, it, it can search and, and, and uh, develop things that you might say 
um, you know, all the deep fake videos and everything else, yeah. that stuff is, is pretty scary. And so um, could that stuff lead to that kind of Terminator environment? It's, it's possible. <laughs> but, um, but I think that there are different layers. I think AI can definitely regurgitate more facts than the human brain can. It can process more things simultaneously than the human brain can. I'm not necessarily convinced that it can be as creative as the human brain, even within 50 or 100 years. And by then, quite frankly, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, you're, well, you, I was going to say you're not going to be here, but you, you, you never know. It's a whole other world, but where medicine is going, you, you could be a cyborg that lives forever at that point. And, and awesome. You'll be the one crunching the data. You'll be just you Thanks, as a I hope so will be complete intelligence. Well, Tony, I really appreciate your time. It's been a great conversation. You left me with quite a bit to think about some um, areas that I, I need to dive deeper as far as the uh, research is concerned. Um, where can people find you as far as maybe things like Twitter and social media and other aspects to your company if they were interested to, to look you up and find more? Sure. Our website is uh, completeintel.com. My uh, Twitter handle is Tony Nash on Asia. I lived in Asia for 15 years, so I got the handle back then. So Tony Nash on Asia. You can find me in both places. Awesome, man. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. Fascinating conversation. You're doing some incredible stuff. Um, we'll have to link up here again and uh, get an update on things. Great. Thanks, John. Take care. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Money MBA podcast with your host, Jonathan Kutzmeda. It's also my pleasure. See to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. To access more great content, visit us online at moneymba.com. That's where the money is. And more than that, control. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. And I am deadly serious about that. That's it. I'm done. <laughs>